You're listening to the Cathedral Podcast. To learn more about Cathedral, like service times or how to get connected with a small group, visit wearecathedral.com. Today's message comes from Dr. Glenn Schultz. Good morning, good morning. Got a lot to cover. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to give the invitation at the beginning. I wonder how many people in here would say to God, God, whatever you teach me today and whatever you tell me I need to do in my life before you even tell me, I want to tell you I will obey. If that's you, I'd like you to raise your hand. If you'll say whatever, God, you tell me to do today. I will obey. Father, we need a fresh touch from you today. Lord, we we need to know truth. We need to know where we have been taken captive by Satan's lies. And Lord, I, I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice, whether in the house here or live out in the virtual world, that we would be an obedient people. Lord, would you move? Would you do whatever you want to do? Regardless of what I've planned, Lord, your spirit control. And Lord, whatever happens, we will trust you and we will praise you and we give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We, we are covering this topic Where do we go from here? If you remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Mike talked about a lot of issues that are dividing our country, dividing our homes and dividing the church. Things like wokeness and intersectionality and critical theory and and, and all of these things that are hitting us. And we're trying to figure out what do we do with all of this? And, And Last week, we sort of started with a verse that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6. And he said, you know, yes, you're in a war, but but you're not in a war just with other human beings. Sometimes we think we are. He said, this war is very different. It's a spiritual war. It's a war that actually started in the heavenlies when Satan rebelled against God. It is a war that goes against rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness. And we saw from this verse where the real war isn't between you and me and you and creation or you and other people. It's a war between God and Satan. And here's the battle. It's God's truth claims against Satan's lies. Both want us to be taken captive by them. Remember we looked at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Don't be taken captive by false ideas, by lies that follow tradition of men, follow Satan's lies, but be taken captive according to Christ, according to the word, according to truth. That's what we should be taken captive of. And as we look at this, I started thinking in preparation for what God had laid on my heart to share with you today. 
How does Satan do this? What is his strategy? So before we get into some background stuff, let me share with you some of Satan's strategy on how he's trying to take us captive by lies. Again, if we go back a couple verses here in Ephesians 6, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We are supposed to stand against not just Satan as a person, but against his wiles. When you look up that word, here's what it means. Wiles has the meaning of tracing out with method and skill. To lie in wait. Satan wants to devour us. He wants to destroy us. Remember, we saw last week that Satan attacks God by attacking Satan, uh, God's creation, trying to hit the three institutions that God ordained. He's trying to destroy the family. He's trying to control the state or government, and he's trying to weaken the church. And he has a plan, a method that he has traced out to do this. He lies in wait. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Unfortunately, I'm fearful that many in the church today are ignorant of Satan's devices. Now, now we're very familiar with our own devices, those little things we hold in our hand and captivate us. But we're ignorant of Satan's devices. What, what, do, what does the writer mean when he says, you've got to be careful and be aware of Satan's devices? That word can also be translated schemes. That which is thought out and planned for the negative. Satan has thought out, he's planned to bring negative things into our lives. Uh, it's like when he puts those schemes together. Here's what they're always targeting. They're targeting your mind. Because Satan is one who lies. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus told the Jews who were there who didn't believe him, he said, you're of your father, the devil. Now these, these were supposedly men of faith. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes. They were the religious leaders. And Jesus is telling them, you're of your father, the devil. And you know something? That's why you don't know truth, because Satan is a liar. His very nature is lies. Anything he speaks is lies. Uh, when he goes and speaks, we know that he's lying because he is actually the father of lies. And so we've got to understand that Satan is going to try and target our minds with lies. One other verse tells you about his strategy back in Ephesians. It says, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Think of just what's taken place with COVID. We're told one thing and we get tossed by a wave. Then we're told just the opposite. We're tossed another way. We don't know which way to go. 
and we stand there being bombarded by these waves that they keep throwing at us, well, that's what Satan does too. He goes and wants us to be tossed to and fro where we don't really know what we believe. And he does that by trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Satan uses trickery of men. Just like in Colossians 2.8, Paul said, don't be taken captive by false ideas that follow human thinking, tradition of men. And this idea of deceitful plotting, it's like the, the predator that is on the scent of the prey. And, and the prey keeps running and the predator just methodically follows the prey. And, and when the prey thinks, I don't see the predator any longer and lets down the guard, the predator comes in and attacks. That's just how Satan does it. If he sees you or me letting down our guard, he is going to come in and attack. And this is Satan's strategy. We've got to understand that Satan, and this is the good part, he's not God. You can say amen to that. Uh, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipotent. In fact, any power that he has, which is good power, I mean, you... You've got to understand, don't try to defeat him in the flesh, you'll lose. But any power he has, God allows it. And he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Satan can only be one place at one time. So the old comedian that I grew up with, Flip Wilson, when he used to always have the closing line, oh, the devil made me do it. No, the devil probably didn't make you do it. It was probably your own sinful heart that made you do it. Now, Satan has a band of demons that he's in control, but he also uses men. And we've got to understand that. He, he is someone who goes and uses trickery of men. And we're going to see this as we look at a timeline on how we got to where we are today. It is a very well-planned plan, uh, battle method. He really has it down. And keep in mind, the goal of Satan is to take us captive with lies. That's what he wants to do in here today. I may be sharing some things with you that are truthful and out of God's word. And Satan's going to tell you, don't believe him. He wants you to believe a lie. But you've got to have the courage and the boldness to say, you know what? I'll stay with God's word. That's what's going on. Satan is constantly accusing and slandering you and me. It is nonstop. We get bombarded with lies all the time. And if we do not become determined to destroy those lies, they will actually form a stronghold in your mind and it's almost impossible to break it. That, that's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, where he says, you've got to pull down the strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against truth and bring every thought captive to Christ. Because once lies get in our minds, because we're just constantly hit with them, it, de it develops a stronghold that we can't break. I want you to think about it. 
for the last 19 months, that's 570 days, 13,680 hours, we have been bombarded about a little virus. We've been told this, we've been told that, we've been told if you don't wear a mask, you're gonna die. If you do wear a mask, you're probably gonna die anyhow. So wear two masks, you gotta be vaccinated. No, don't be vaccinated. We're bombarded with all these lies many times and there's strongholds in our minds. And you know what? It's hard to break them. It's hard to go and say, I, I'm fearful. But God says, no, no. I'm gonna give you truth and truth is gonna set you free. And that's what we've got to understand. Because Satan is always trying to take us captive by lies and not by truth, we've got to understand the power of words. Words actually shape our ideas and form our beliefs. If there were no words, we wouldn't know what to believe. And what we believe drives our actions and behaviors, whether it's for good or bad. But it all starts with words. And we've got to understand that back when I was growing up, there were rules to language. When you use certain words, they meant something. But, but that's no longer the case. And, and the problem with that is when words and language have rules and, and the meanings are known by everybody. It allows us to communicate where we have understanding. I, I was reading some statistics this week and in the Oxford English Dictionary, from March to June of this year, they added 700 new words. 700, that's just one quarter of a year. But here's something else that blew my mind. 1,000 existing definitions were revised and changed. A thousand words that we use in our English language, we think we know the meaning of it, and we now know that they've changed the meaning of it. So when you say something, you think you know what you mean, but you find out it's been changed in its meaning, and people hear it differently. There are no longer any rules to language. In fact, if enough people use a particular word in it with a certain definition, that automatically becomes its new definition. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, when I took my bachelor's uh, program in college, I received a liberal arts education. Liberal back then meant it was well-rounded. You had the humanities and the sciences and the philosophies and the languages. It was a well-rounded liberal education. You use the word liberal now, people accuse you of being with a certain political party. I, I didn't get a political party education. I got a liberal arts education. So see, just when you change definitions, it really presents problems. And by changing definitions and meaning of words, someone can actually control the debate and shape society. And so we're gonna be very careful in defining words. 
when I use a word, I'm going to say, here's what I mean by this word. Because I don't want you to think, oh, you're talking about this when I'm not. We've got to understand that. John Stone Street said it is no good having the same vocabulary if we're using different dictionaries. We've got to have a common language to even understand this book. Remember, we said last week that ideas shape culture. And we talked about how the ideas that shape culture spread. We said they spread geographically around the world. We said that they spread through time by being passed from one generation to another generation. And we talked about the fact that ideologies to shape culture, they're, they're, uh, they advance vertically down through culture. And if you remember, and you were here last week or watched last week live, we had this little chart where it starts with the intellectuals, the philosophers. And they form the narrative that the artists, the, the songwriters, the storytellers, the authors take those ideas and put them out and start becoming, putting them into culture where all of a sudden it becomes pop culture. And then the professionals, the, the politicians, the teachers, the lawyers, the judges, they take those pop culture ideas and they go and they institutionalize them by laws and educational theories and things like this. And then guess what? We have to live with it. Ideas shape culture. It's always upstream from economics and politics. If it's in the political field, guess what? It's already taken over the culture. We also talked about the fact that it's a reflection. Culture is a reflection of the God or gods that society is worshiping. So if you look at our culture, culture of North Charleston, the culture of South Carolina or the culture of the United States, the culture that we are living in is a reflection of the gods that the people of the culture are worshiping. And we've got to realize that forms the foundation for economics, social, political, educational, and legal institutions. I'm wondering if any of you have ever thought something like this recently. My wife and I will be talking and you know, being of a certain age, you got a lot of history and you see a lot of things take place in your lifetime. But have you ever thought what has happened in our country? Have you ever thought that? I, I mean, it's just like with a blink of an eye, everything has changed. There are things taking place and maybe, maybe you don't understand this, but there are things right now that are realities in our lives that five years ago, I never even heard about. So, am I the only one? No, okay, all right. You know, how did this all happen? Did someone just come and say, oh, let me dump all this stuff on them and overwhelm them? Did, did someone just light a match and something exploded? What we're going to do today in trying to address all these issues, social justice and wokeness and all this stuff, Instead of thinking this just came about, I want you to understand it's been a slow, 
steady march through history. Now, it has just exploded on the scene, but it's been in the works for many, many years, for centuries, really. And we're going to take a little timeline travel, and we're going to go and look at this whole battle between God and his truth claims and, and Satan's lies. If you embrace God's truth claims and you think biblically, we're told that you have a biblical worldview. But if you embrace the lies of Satan, you end up with a secular, man-centered, humanistic worldview. And guess what? Whatever your worldview is, it drives all of your actions and attitudes in life. And, and what you're going to see is throughout history, there has been those who have embraced the truths of God and understood a biblical worldview and they, it started shaping culture in a way. But at the same time, Satan came, comes behind God because he's never, he's never creative. But he comes behind God with a counterfeit thinking to try and shape our, our culture that way. I'm not going to go back to Genesis 3 and walk all the way up here because we do have to finish by 3 o'clock. So I, I just, we're, we're just going to go back to the Renaissance. And I'm not going to give you a big history lesson on the Renaissance, simply saying this. The Renaissance came out of the Middle Ages, really revived uh, art, and, and it revived the importance of the human being. The dignity of being a human being sort of got brought back up, got rebirthed, you could say. It had been sort of lost in the Middle Ages. And in here, new creativity came in. And two little strands started from the Renaissance. First of all, there was a group that really took hold of Scripture and said, this is going to shape our belief system. And we had what's called the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation had their intellectuals. They had Luther and they had uh, Calvin and Knox. And, and even though they didn't write down these five solas that was called uh, back then, these, there were five basic doctrines out of scripture that just drove everything that they preached and everything that they lived. And then in the early 19th century, some people actually wrote these five solas down. And, and here's what these five solas are. First was sola scriptura. This alone is the final authority for life and faith. That, that's sola scriptura. We don't need any of man's writings. We've got the scriptures. That was foundational to the Reformation. And then there was sola fide, meaning faith alone. And by this, they said, guess what? You don't work your way to heaven. Works will never get you to heaven. The only thing that will get you saved is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Faith alone without works. Now, our works should be a testimony of our faith, but it doesn't do anything to get us into heaven. Then there was sola gratia, which is grace alone. There is nothing 
that you can do to deserve God's salvation. I am not worthy of it. It's totally out of God's grace that he extended freely to me that I can live in the power of his Holy Spirit. Then there was sola Christo, of Christ alone or by Christ alone. That Christ is the only way to the Father. And that, that's lost in today's evangelical church. If you look at the statistics, a too high a number, it's over 50% of evangelical Christians think that if any God that you serve and you do it sincerely, you'll get to heaven. Where Jesus said, no, I am the only way to the Father. And then the last solo was sola Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. There is nothing we're going to do for any other purpose but for God's glory. Those five things shaped the Reformation. And then the Reformation that took place in Europe spread across the ocean, came to North America. Probably the most significant theologian in early colonial days was Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, they said that in his biography that sometimes he would spend 13 hours a day just being alone with God in his word. And his preaching, uh, his very famous sermon was sinners in the hand of an angry God. And and all of a sudden revival broke out because there was other Puritan preaching taking place and thousands upon thousands came to know Christ as Savior. Now, Now I'm gonna pause here and do a sidebar. There are some people today who are trying to cancel out Jonathan Edwards. They're saying, we're not gonna pay attention to what he wrote, we're not gonna pay attention to what he preached because guess what, he wasn't perfect. Is there anybody in here who's been perfect? Okay, all right, I just wanted to make sure. If I, some, once in a while, maybe someone will slip in. And, but you know, none of us are perfect. In fact, Jonathan Edwards had a sin nature. He was not completely pure. No matter how strong of a biblical worldview you get or I get, we'll never have a fully biblical worldview. We're fallen creatures. And guess what? Jonathan Edwards had sin in his life. He actually owned slaves. And there are some people saying, because of that, well, we're going to disregard, we're going to cancel out everything that he taught. Well, guess what? If we do that, then we've got to cancel out everything that Knox taught, everything that Calvin taught, everything that uh, Luther taught. We'd have to take the 95 thesis he nailed on the church door and gave his life for the gospel and say, oh, I can't pay attention. Because guess what? They were all sinners. Oh, and you can't stop there. You got to get rid of Abraham. Remember, he's the one who lied about his wife, who Sarah was, and she almost found herself in immorality. And of course, you have to get rid of Moses because Moses disobeyed God and couldn't even go in the promised land. 
And oh yes, we're going to have to cut out all the Psalms because David, he was an adulterer and a murderer. And of course, the Proverbs, we can't pay attention to those. We've got to cancel out Solomon because he allowed all of his wives to turn his heart away from God and not follow him fully. Here's the point I want to get to you. This book is true not because men wrote it, but because it's God's word. And when a person puts their faith in God's word and lives according to that, even though they're not perfect, God uses them to change culture. And so I want to put that up there. I don't want you to think that I'm saying, oh, these people are perfect and had no sin because that's an impossibility. But that doesn't mean you cancel them out or else you'd have to cancel out your own lives. You'd have to cancel out anything I wrote because guess what? I've committed sins. But when we go and confess our sin like David did and ask God to return the joy of our salvation into our lives, God still uses broken people. So keep that in mind as we go on. And what happened, the great awakening and preaching like of that of Jonathan Edwards led to an amazing revolution that was all about liberty. It was called the American Revolution. And this was a revolution where people wanted to have liberty, but not any type of liberty. The liberty they were fighting for was based on a biblical worldview where they were under the moral authority of God. Now that's important for you to understand because at the same time, Satan came in from the Renaissance and he took this new spirit of the dignity of human beings and he started twisting the minds of philosophers of that day and the enlightenment showed up and the enlightenment it had its intellectuals just like the reformers were in the reformation intellectuals like Hume, Kant, Rousseau, Voltaire, Spinoza. Voltaire believed above all in the efficacy of of reason. Rousseau Man was in the state of nature, was free, wise, good, and the laws of nature were benevolent. It was all about man and man's reason. And, And these people started bringing in things like secularism, humanism. Human reason became the basis for determining what was truth, not God. So, and it's not like, oh, these people were up here and these people were down here. No, they're in the culture. There's people in our culture right now, in our community, that they think like Satan. They've been taken captive by lies. They may work with you and they may be your neighbors. That's how this is. These aren't separate people that are operating in different communities. They're happening at the same time. These intellectuals led to another revolution right after our revolution. And guess what? It was also a revolution for liberty. But it wasn't liberty based on a biblical worldview. It was based on a man-centered worldview. And here's what they thought liberty was. Liberty means I am free 
to do whatever I want. I do not have any moral constraints on my behavior. I am a law unto myself. The autonomous man is born. Two revolutions that show the battle between God's truth claims and Satan's lies. From there, let me just sort of spread it out a little bit more. From the time of the founding of our country, we have been on a very slow, gradual decline in biblical morality. Now it's sped up in the last few years. It's been sort of breakneck speed the last couple years. But it was a slow decline. And what happened was church did not defend a biblical worldview. Now, it took time for this to happen. And the result of not defending the biblical worldview, all of a sudden, sort of two branches of theology came out. There was the secular-driven liberal theology. And when I say liberal theology, let me share with you just some of the beliefs that, that are tied to a liberal theology of Christianity. The Bible is not the inspired and errant word of God. It's written by fallible men and it's full of inconsistencies. It's just a good guide for moral teaching. The Bible is not meant to be reality. It's just a big metaphor. Historical Adam, no, you know, evolution has destroyed that. Man evolved. It's just sort of a basic thing where some evil came upon a group of people. There are no supernatural miracles because the material world is all there is. Hell is not even real. There's no final judgment. It's just sort of how bad people behave right now. Good works can save you. Truth is relative. It depends on the circumstances whether you should lie or not. The gospel is social in nature, not salvitic in nature or saving the soul. It's social in nature, and it's all about being inclusive and fighting for social justice. Now we're going to talk about social, we're going to talk about justice in a couple weeks. But, but that's liberal theology. And what happened when liberal theology broke on the scene, there was a group who said, no, we've got to defend the doctrines of the Bible. And they were referred to as fundamentalists. And they got together and said, we are going to really protect biblical sound doctrine. But in so doing, what they did, they set up a dualistic worldview where they compartmentalized life and they said, We've got the religious or the sacred part of life, and then everything else is secular. Politics, your job, education, that's all secular. We're just focusing on what we could say Sunday church. Monday church stopped being existent. So here they've got a dualistic worldview, and what we're going to see is Satan is winning because he's weakening the church. He's also winning because he's in the process of destroying the family and taking control of the state. 
From the French Revolution, a man came about, his name was Hegel. Hegel is considered the most significant philosopher that has shaped Western civilization, which was the civilization of Europe and North America. He was the most significant one. But he's the one who started bringing the state into its position of almost divinity. Listen to what he said. The true state is the ethical whole and realization of freedom. The state is the march of God through the world. We must worship the state as the manifestation of the divine, not God, as it exists on earth. In fact, an individual's supreme duty is to be a member of the state. You and I, according to Hegel, our supreme duty is lose our individualism for the sake of the state. We have actually seen that in some ways when for the sake of the state we, were, we removed ourselves from a country and some of the people we left behind were insignificant because the state was more important than the individual. Folks, we're seeing this come to light. And from Hegel, we got seven men who Dave Brees in his book, Seven Men Who Still Rule the World from the Grave. Powerful book. I can remember reading it back in the 70s, I think it was written. And he took these seven men and showed how their philosophies, based on a man-centered, humanistic, secular, anti-Christian philosophy, shaped everything about culture. Darwin changed how we looked at where we came from. Marx changed how we looked at government. Wellhausen was one of those liberal theologians who changed how we look at scripture in the church. Sigmund Freud on human nature. Everything became a sexual aspect of human nature. John Dewey was so divisive and has destroyed so many minds through saying that truth is only truth through experience and shaped how we do education today, which is totally anti-biblical. Kierkegaard shaped how we looked at reality that this life is all there is, it's existential. And then Keynes shaped even the whole concept of economy, not on a free market, but on a government controlled market. These men went to the far left, they produced Marx and Engels, who became very, you'll see, destructive. But on the far right, taking it the other way, was Hitler and Mussolini. Both extremes were deadly. But where we are today, we're going to focus on what took place when Marx and Engels started developing their social philosophy. The first that was formed was called classical Marxism. The second, what we're in today, is neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. Now, now let me explain a little bit about this. Classical Marxism was Lenin, Stalin, Mao in, in China. Folks, I, I wish we had a couple hours to really 
let me share with you what happens in a communist state. In 1990, 91, 92, those years, I did five trips to the former Soviet Union. I spent a week in Magadan, probably the darkest place I've ever set my foot on. It was the port entry city of all the Russian religious and political prisoners who were traipsed up into the Siberian mountains into the Russian gulags. I've seen the pile of skulls in a picture where the prisoners, when they died, they cut their skulls open, took their brains out, sent it to Moscow to, to see the effect of radiation on the human brain. Socialism and communism, the estimates are anywhere from 180 to 200 million people have been murdered basically for their religious and political beliefs. It's a destructive one. But classical Marxism, and here's what all Marxism does, and this was Hegel's and we'll see some others, it divides people up into two groups, the oppressor and the oppressed. With classical Marxism, it's economic classes. It's the worker who's oppressed and the owners who are the oppressors. And what you do is you build up the oppressed to be, become so angry that they revolt against the oppressor. But here's what always happens. When the oppressed take over the oppressor, they always are more severe in their own oppression. Neo-Marxism went a different way. Men like Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, Frankfurt School, postmodern thinkers, they took it not just economic class distinction, oppressed and oppressors, then they added a lot of other categories in those two groups. To show you how anti-Christian it is, Antonio Gramsci is, he is quoted in most neo-Marxist teaching. Socialism is precisely the re religion that must overwhelm Christianity. Socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. Remember, Satan uses the trickery of men to take us into captivity. These people actually developed what was considered critical theory. Critical theory, Max Horkmeyer in 1937 was influenced by Marx and the Frankfurt School. The aim was to unmask the ideology falsely, justifying some form of revolt against the oppression. Here's what critical theory does. They ignore all the good of society. They focus on just the injustices and magnify them to the point where it riles up the oppressed to revolt. What happened, critical theory started showing up in higher education. I, I, I walk through this. It didn't jump into wokeness and and social justice and intersectionality and critical race. No, it first went into multiculturalism. 
And all of a sudden, you started getting ethnic studies in colleges. There were women's studies, and there were Asian studies, and there were Hispanic studies, and African-American studies. And what it did, it started dividing people up into groups. And then those groups got together, and they studied, and these ideologies that these other people have developed started infiltrating and telling them you're oppressed because you're in this group because you're this minority because you're that you're a female because you're in the lgbtq plus and it started dividing it up self-esteem self-actualization and now it has devolved into all these different groups of oppressed and the more groups you're in the greater your oppression, and we're going to just highlight the injustices to your group, not the other things, so that you'll rise up and revolt. All of these things, the wokeness, the critical race theory, the intersectionality, the the gender confusion, all of those you can really put under social justice umbrella. And again, in a couple weeks, I want to take justice And I want to take this book and I want to go and look at what is true justice. Because there are injustices, folks, because we live in a fallen world. And what is justice from Scripture? We've got to understand this. But here's the thing that is even more heartbreaking to me. Liberal theology had already embraced social justice. So now they team up with what the world has put together. So what has happened to the evangelical church? Well, because they've divided life up into the secular and the sacred, they're just focusing on the spiritual and they've left that to the world. And so there's no biblical voice in justice today. And we've got to bring it back. That's our only hope of truly bringing unity back to the body of Christ. That is so important. That, that's a quick summary, folks. And, and it's not, here's what happens. There, there was Christian influence even in the enlightenment and things. And that's what Satan's so good at. There is always some little nugget of truth that Satan puts in his lies. And the most believable lies are the ones that are closest to the truth. And we've got to understand that. So here's what we're faced with. With with all of this that has taken place. See, it didn't just blow up, folks. It's been there. We just didn't pay attention to it. And now we don't know what to do with it because it's overwhelming us. So how do we find hope in this chaos? Number one, we must defeat secular and dualistic thinking. We can no longer afford to see life in the secular sacred divide. As long as we do, what we're saying is, God, we're not going to put our trust totally in you. Number two, we must understand that Christianity is not only a comprehensive worldview that addresses all of life, it's the only true worldview that addresses all issues in life. See, what we've got to see is life is a whole. 
There is nothing in life outside the sacred. Do you realize politics is sacred to God? There's a biblical approach to that. Sex, business, justice, the church, education, law, ethnicity. You can, everything about life. And here's the thing. There is a battle going on where the kingdom of darkness wants to control certain areas of your life. And there's the kingdom of light that God is in charge. He wants to control everything. And see, we don't all just all of a sudden find ourselves totally captivated by lies. It may be that Satan just comes into one area of your life and just takes one little aspect of your life and takes that captive to his lies. And we've got to start uncovering that. The third, when, when you think about this, I want you to think of this quote by John Owen. Now this is a Puritan writer in England, theologian in the 1600s. It sounds like it's for today. Without absolutes revealed from without by God himself, we are left rudderless in a sea of conflicting ideas about manners, justice, and right and wrong, issuing from a multitude of self-opinionated thinkers. And see, the trickery of men and the tradition of men that Satan uses to deceive us, they are just self-opinionated thinkers who don't look to God for answers. Number three, we must view every issue through the lens of Scripture. And that's what we're going to do in a couple weeks with justice. But let me leave you with a quote. A.W. Tozer says this. Now remember, many of you rose, raised your hand at the beginning and said, you know what? God, whatever you show me in my life that you need to take care of, I'll do it. So as you look at this, you've got to ask yourself, okay, God, through your Holy Spirit, show me any areas of my life where I've been taken captive by lies and not by truth. And then, God, would you reveal truth to me out of your word? And then will I submit to your truth, not to Satan lies? I leave you with this quote by A.W. Tozer. A Christian's one question in any set of circumstances is what does God think of this? Nothing else matters. What the current popular attitude may be is of no importance. He will approve or disapprove altogether as the written word and the indwelling spirit indicate. See, that's where sola Christo is. In Christ alone would you stand and worship as we close the service. You've been listening to the Cathedral Podcast. If you were encouraged by today's message, leave us a rating and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions about today's message or just want to reach out, send an email to questions at cathedralemail.com. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Have a blessed week.